0: Welcome back to The Jacob Bull Show. Hope you're having a good Monday. A lot to discuss today. A little bit of a slower news week than last week, thankfully. So the broadcast uh, shouldn't be so much feature length, uh, but still a lot of news breaking. I should mention, though, before we get into it, uh, we are hiring video editors at Predator DC. So if you're a very experienced, a very talented video editor, you can uh, send in an email Uh, to uh, jacob at org is the place to send that. Uh, But we begin the show today talking about a precipitous collapse in the British pound. What is going on in the British pound? What's going on in the UK? This uh, currency crisis that's taking place there could have ramifications all around the world. Uh, People depend on these kind of first world currencies to be reasonably stable and so there are there's a whole world of bets that take place side bets there's there's a whole world of of derivatives markets that exist to stabilize global trade and all of those markets are going to be uh, absolutely rocked to their core uh, by this this is going to be a very significant move it is already a very significant move all over the world uh, and it is having already ramifications on global trade. It's causing issues uh, as it relates to uh, currency bets at various banks. This could could start a real crisis. Now, you, you, you remember what basically happened in the world of Bitcoin throughout this year, this massive crash. Well, the, the market for something like the British pound is much, much larger. The degree to which there are side bets, the degree to which Uh, there is leverage uh, in something like the British pound is much higher. But we start here with a report from the Financial Times. Uh, It says here, uh, the title of the report is The British Pound Extends Its Decline in Sunday Night uh, Trading. It says here, uh, uh, traders bet on emergency interest rate rise after pound hits record low. Currency crumbles further after UK chancellor announced biggest tax cuts in 50 years. So they had this new chancellor in. They've announced tax cuts. They're going to a Reagan-esque policy. It says here, the pound tumbled to a record low on Monday while government bonds extended heavy losses, stirring expectations of an emergency rise in UK interest rates in the wake of Chancellor Kwasi Quarteng's package of tax cuts last week. The currency lost as much as 4.7% to trade, as low as uh, $1.035 in terms of dollars in the morning before stabilizing to around $1. seven, after Quarteng vowed at the weekend to stick to his tax-cutting drive, prompting warnings that the U.K. is entering a currency crisis. The early fall took the pound to its lowest ever uh, recorded levels. It has sharpened criticism on, Friday, on Friday's fiscal uh, sentiment when the Chancellor announced a massive new wave of borrowing to fund $45 billion of tax cuts, and a package to curb rising energy bills. And I think when you look at this, it's more likely that the energy subsidies are a problem here. Of course, the UK is part of this proxy war against Russia. And now you have a situation in which they are paying the price because Russia is not sending the kind of energy that they were sending in terms of natural gas and oil prior to their invasion of Ukraine. That's the real issue. And so the the government says, well, don't worry about that. We know that the prices are actually up 50%, 60%, 100%, 800% across Europe. Don't worry about that. All we're going to do is cap your energy bill. And for the average consumer, they say that's great. I mean, I know I would. There are instances where people's energy bills rose from $200 a month to $2,000 a month for small businesses. The United Kingdom says, we'll just cap your bill. Of course, somebody has to pay for that energy. The government's paying for it, and to pay for it, they are printing pounds. They are printing money. And And the market is telling us that they're printing money far beyond what they've actually declared. That's what the market is telling us here. Central Bank declined to comment further. But uh, this is really causing a lot of problems in the UK. Their buying power, as their currency, of course, goes down, it it lessens. So in real terms, the currency becomes, or the oil becomes even more expensive. Not a good situation in Europe, not a good situation for the UK. And it it bodes very well for Russia. Of course, uh, I have predicted that this uh, Western alliance, so-called Western alliance between the United States... Europe, Australia, uh, the traditional Western allies, that is going to come apart at the seams come winter. Now, I don't know very much about long-term forecasting of weather. The people that actually trade energy professionally, they are very good at uh, figuring out what the weather is going to be months in advance and then figuring out who's going to figure that out and trading energy on it to try to have some edge in the marketplace. But, uh, that's not my expertise. We will see how cold this winter really is. That's what we will have to see. Uh, Martin here in the uh, live chat, uh, for those of you watching on YouTube, he says, uh, they removed bankers' bonuses uh, too, right? No doubt the crash is a revenge ploy by spiteful market makers. That yeah, could be. Uh, in fact, the, the British pound has traditionally been a favorite of market manipulators, uh, famously, George Soros made a ton of money. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars on a single day uh, by manipulating the British pound lower. Doing that these days, uh, certainly in the United States, but in most countries would land you in jail. Uh, but he did that back in the uh, 90s and made made a lot of money with that. It was kind of his last hoorah in the trading world personally. Uh, but when I want to go to this uh, clip here out of the House of Representatives. This shows you exactly how incestuous the relationships between Wall Street, big business, uh, more broadly than just Wall Street, and Capitol Hill really is. And this is a clip of uh, Indiana Republican uh, Representative Trey Hollingsworth. He went semi-viral with this. I just want to play the clip for you here and give you a sense of how it actually works on Capitol Hill in the world of lobbying, in the world of uh, big banks, making sure that they get what they want out of the federal government. Uh, this is, uh, again, Indiana Republican Representative Trey Hollingsworth. And this is in front of the uh, House Financial Services Committee last week with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. The gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Hollingsworth, is now recognized for five minutes. Well, good afternoon. I'm excited to be here with each of you. Before I get started on my questions, Mr. Moynihan, I wanted to let you know, Saruthi, raise your hand, Saruthi. She has been my team member for a couple of years now, but on Monday, she becomes a Bank of America team member, about which she is very, very excited. So I hope you'll take good care of her and know and recognize the talent that she has shown already in our office. I'm sure she'll do the same at Bank of America.
1: We will do that, and her father
0: already works for us, so he'll oh, take care of it. You should
1: have called us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, well, good. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to chat about some of these issues today. What I'm really interested in is the state of the economy. So you hear that there? I mean, just the the absolute uh, incestuousness. That's again uh, Representative Trey Hollingsworth. This is a Republican from Indiana talking to Brian Moynihan, and. He says, oh, her father already works for us. That's great. you know. Now she's going to come join as well. And anytime that we need something, I'm sure, from uh, your staff, anytime that we need uh, moves in, within legislation, anytime that we need a bailout, we will uh, certainly have a direct link uh, right into your office, and uh, that's all the better. Now, of course, you heard at the beginning of that clip, likely, uh, Representative Maxine Waters. She is the head of the House Financial Services Committee. She is the chairwoman of that committee. Uh, And you might think that that's crazy on the surface, seeing what you have probably seen in public of Maxine Waters. Uh, But I will assure you, Maxine Waters is no dummy. Maxine Waters is, uh, she's sharp. In fact, I I recall being uh, on a flight from uh, DCA to LAX. It was a early Saturday morning flight and uh, sat down and uh, right next to me was Maxine Waters. And uh, first class, of course, she's sitting right at the front of the plane, like all congressmen do. They have uh, budgets for that paid for by you. And uh, I sit down next to her. I say, you know, you're a spitting image for the chair of the House Financial Services Committee. And she says, oh, really, you know, uh, what do you do? And I said uh, to her, I'm just a lobbyist. And uh, her eyes lit up when she heard that she was seated next to a lobbyist. And, uh, I mean, you should have seen the way that she treated me that whole flight. I mean, it was like she had these, these tote bags that were just loaded full of various uh, snacks and sandwiches and uh I mean fresh fruit and I mean she was serving me up snacks and cookies and and sandwiches and uh and and Gatorade like I mean it was like uh I I it was as if I was her grandson or something and she was hanging out with her grandson I mean it was just uh, unbelievable hospitality as soon as she learned that I was a registered lobbyist, and she certainly didn't recognize who I was because back then, at the time, the, the masks and all of that stuff. Uh, but she uh, probably was hoping that maybe I would uh, host her a fundraiser, maybe I would uh, cut her a check uh, right there on the plane to her campaign, or who knows. But it was uh, really unbelievable, and 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 I will tell you, she is uh, she is no dummy. I mean, we we lobby the House Financial Services Committee quite a bit when we have clients that uh, face regulatory issues with the SEC, CFTC, FINRA, uh, we, we lobby them to, to help resolve those issues. And so I'm very familiar with that committee, and uh, it's interesting, Maxine Waters, of course. But another clip uh, from that very same hearing, it's not often that clips from the House Financial Services Committee go viral, but in this case it did. Uh, another clip that also uh, made the rounds is uh, this clip uh, from Rashida Tlaib. She is a Muslim congresswoman. Uh, from Michigan, Dearborn, Michigan, kind of just around Dearborn, essentially uh, wraps around. It's been redistricted a couple times, and she was questioning J.P. Morgan Chase uh, CEO Jamie Dimon. Uh, this clip also making the rounds recently. Uh, take a listen.
1: You have all committed, as you all know, uh, to transition the emissions from lending and investment activities to line with pathways to net zero in 2050. Do you know uh, what the International Energy Energy um, Agency has said is required to meet our goal, global 2015 net zero targets of limiting global temperature rise to 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit or uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius? So no new fossil fuel production starting today, that's, so that's like zero. So I would like to ask all of you and go down the list because, again, you all have agreed to doing this. Please answer with a simple yes or no. Does your bank have a policy against funding new oil and gas products? Mr. Diamond? Absolutely not, and that would be the road to hell for America. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Sir, you know what? Everybody that got relief from student loans has a bank account with your bank should probably take out their account and close their account. The fact that you're not even there to help relieve many of the folks that are in debt, extreme debt because of student loan debt, and you're out there criticizing it.
0: That was the analysis from uh, Rashida Tlaib. She's very unfocused, of course. Uh, most people's immediate response to this was that she said celesis instead of celsius. And and I'm one where I, I don't make a huge deal out of people misspeaking uh, as many speeches as I've given and as many shows as I've done. We all uh, mispronounce something here and there. But I will say in that word in particular, celesis, I, I don't think you would ever mispronounce Celsius and say Celesis because, you know, sometimes one word looks like another actual word. In that case, I I think maybe she just doesn't know what the word actually is or was. I mean, certainly she has figured it out now. Uh, but, but my analysis goes deeper than that. And and I took a look, I was interested. I took a look at Rashida Taib's, uh, Rashida Taib's, uh, district. And, uh, I have I have looked at kind of the demographics, what's going on there, and what exactly she's calling for, what that would mean for her district. So she is from Michigan's thirteenth congressional district. This is a district of about seven hundred and five thousand residents, uh, consisting of the area sort of directly surrounding Dearborn, Michigan, and and it's been, again it's been redistricted a number of times. She hails from Dearborn. She is Muslim. Uh, a large Muslim population, of course, in Dearborn, Michigan. I'm sure many of you have heard of that. Uh, but the district's median household income is $37,000 a year. 37000 a year. That's the median household income uh, in Rashida Tlaib's district. Uh, the college graduation rate is 17%. Uh, the high school graduation rate is only 83.5%. Median age there are 35.9 versus the national median age of 38.1. So it's a, it's a young district. It is a rather uneducated district. It is a poor district. Uh, the district is 33.6 percent white, and 54 percent black. Uh, the poverty rate in the district, so the people that are actually uh, within the realm of poverty, they're below the poverty line, is 28.2 percent. And that's down 5% from last year. So it's, it's moving lower, but it's uh, still very, very high. And to give you some reference, the U.S. itself has a national poverty rate of 11.6%. Uh, Michigan statewide poverty rate is only just slightly higher than the national rate at 13.1. So this is a very poor district. If you've ever been through there, it, you, you know it's a very, very poor district. It's very crime-ridden. Uh, it's a miserable, miserable place. Uh, the median property value there is $79,400. Yet, you know, all this misery and and the failings that are going on there, uh, the district is rated as a D plus 23 district. No Republican has a chance in Rashida Tlaib's district. These are where Republicans go places like this to run these kind of phony races that you see. You know, where, where Republicans go and they run in a district that is... D plus 23 and they raise a lot of money and they say, we're going to get rid of fill in the blank big Democrat. And of course they don't. And this is the realm of the career candidate. You've all heard of of career politicians, but one of the things that I've talked about on this show are career candidates. These are people that bounce around. They do things like run against Nancy Pelosi and they say, we're going to beat Nancy Pelosi. And They don't have a plan to do it. They don't really think it's even possible. They raise millions of dollars with viral videos. And what happens is they do things like pay campaign managers and various subcontractors lots of money, and then some of that money is kicked back to them to live on. Uh, I think I covered uh, one of the more blatant fraud schemes that took place, which was the campaign of Kim Klasik. Remember this gal? Uh, Good-looking black girl running up in Baltimore, had zero chance of winning, deep blue district, raised tons of money. Boomers fell in love with her. She got a podcast deal out of it, but it was one of those type deals. And we covered that in more detail when it was first revealed to be a big scheme. Uh, The left runs these occasionally as well, but uh, the right is, is, is more apt to run these kind of races. In any event, she's in a D plus 23 district. Now, Let's talk about what she's what she's exactly calling for here. Rashida Tlaib is, is suggesting there should be no fossil fuels. They should be shut down immediately. But her constituents can't afford the kind of electricity that she's calling for. They can't afford to drive electric cars, certainly. The average household income is $37,000. The poverty rate's almost 30%, was over 30% last year. So they can't afford this, this luxury electricity that she's talking about. And remember, this is an energy-intensive place to live because it gets kind of hot and muggy in the summer. And uh, in the winter, it's very cold. Uh, The average winter low temperature in her district is 21 degrees or negative 6 degrees Celsius uh, or Celsius, as she prefers to say. So in her district, I looked at some of these rates, for example. What would it cost to put up solar panels? Well, the average cost there uh, would be $20,000 to put up solar panels, Remember, the homes are only valued on average at at $79,000, so it's not as though you could get a mortgage against your house to put these things up. And no bank would make that mortgage because of how poorly they would work. Remember, if you're in an apartment or condo, forget about it. There's not enough roof space for uh, what you're looking to do. In the winter, of course, the solar panels would be totally covered in snow most of the time, so they would be totally worthless. Uh, So for much of the winter, they'd be completely worthless Uh, and you look at how much you'd save, the the rosiest estimates, the most optimistic estimates on how much money you would save in this district based on where it's placed relative to the sun and all of that is that you would have a total of $8,000 in savings over the course of 20 years. So you're going to pay $20,000 for the solar panels, and they're only going to save you $8,000 over 20 years if they last that long. And again, you know, given the amount of snow and ice that's going to build up on them, there's no chance they're lasting 20 years anyway. And, and you have to pay $20,000. So it's totally ridiculous. The poor people who live in her district and vote for her can't afford this. They need fossil fuel energy. She doesn't care. It's all about uh, promoting this this far-left lie that the earth is, is going to fall off a cliff and burn at, at, and come apart and dinosaurs are going to crawl out of the ground because of global warming. So uh, this is something that is uh, totally ridiculous, totally ridiculous. It says here, her district is asthmatic due to obesity and marijuana smoking. Asthma has increased, but air quality has gotten better. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. You don't want to smoke dope. Not good for your lungs. Looking here at the chat here live. Uh, Bank of America has uh, zero down loans in minority communities with no credit check now. I think they could uh, take out a loan against their house, but maybe pot is more important than panels to them. Yeah, I didn't to credit to them again that the solar panels aren't going to work. This is what somebody wrote here in the chat. Uh Somebody says thank you. Okay, so we've got the live chat here if you're watching live on YouTube. There was a case that came out last week and uh, has to do with James O'Keefe. We all like James O'Keefe. I think everybody watching here is a fan of James O'Keefe. But the important part about this case is the precedent that it has set or that it is attempting to, to make, which is totally new law. No law calls for anything like this. It's utterly disturbing. Uh, The story here out of Axios, jury awards Democrat firm $120,000 in Project Veritas lawsuit. So what's going on here? Uh, Well, the the report here from Axios says uh, a jury found Project Veritas liable in a federal civil case for fraudulently misrepresenting itself and violating wiretapping laws after the conservative group targeted a Democratic political consulting firm in an undercover operation, per The New York Times. Uh, Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe said on the group's YouTube channel Thursday night they'll appeal the verdict after the jury awarded the consulting firm Democracy Partners $120,000 in the case. Lawyers for Democracy Partners told the jury in Washington earlier this month their clients were victims of political spying conducted by Project Veritas during the 2016 presidential campaign. Project Veritas insisted it was news gathering and that its operatives work as journalists uh, doing stings. Now here's the really critical part of this story. This is really the important part. So so listen carefully here. But the five women and four men found former operative Alison Mass quote breached a fiduciary duty unquote in the operation that quote amounted to fraudulent misrepresentation unquote after she gained an internship at Democracy Partners quote using a false name. And story. So, this is what the uh, jury said. Now, here's a question I mean, breached a fiduciary duty. Is the claim here that investigative journalists have a fiduciary duty to the people that they are investigating? Because that is just totally and utterly bizarre. I mean, when we do Predator DC as journalists, are we. Uh, In a fiduciary relationship with the pedophiles that we are busting who walk into the Stinghouse? No, obviously not. The lawyers that they hire to represent them in court afterwards certainly are. Yes, those are their fiduciaries. Fiduciary relationships are important. But I have never heard anyone make the claim that journalists owe a fiduciary duty to the people that they're reporting on. It's utterly nuts. It's completely crazy. And they say amounted to false, fraudulent misrepresentation. Well, perhaps. Now, you see, if this group, democracy partners, wanted to sue this woman for any monies that they paid her, if they paid her any, she was, of course, just an intern, so it would have been very little or uh, perhaps none at all. Well, maybe they could do that. Maybe they could sue for that, uh, given that there was a false story involved if they ever paid her. Now, I would imagine because of the journalistic issues at play here, probably she didn't take any payment from them because that would start to introduce a, a muddy situation. Their lawyers would probably advise them against that. It's sort of like when when we're doing Predator DC, sometimes the Predators will offer to send the underage teen money somehow or other. You know, let me send you money for this. Let me send you money to go buy Victoria's Secret or wh- whatever they say. And we always say no just because it, it just... It entangles the whole thing in certain ways. Now you have financial transactions involved, and it, it just it muddies the waters in a certain sense. It's not as though it would be the end of the world, uh, but we just cut it off because it just it, it introduces complication that we don't need to deal with when it's already so complicated. Says here, Mass secretly recorded conversations and took papers that she gave to Project Veritas, which edited and published the videos as part of an operation that Democracy Partners said was designed to embarrass Hillary Clinton and boost presidential rival Donald Trump's election chances, per the New York Times. Hopefully, their decision today will help to discourage Mr. O'Keefe and others from conducting these kind of political spy operations and publishing selectively edited, misleading videos in the future, said Democracy Partners co-founder Robert Kramer in a statement. There you go. Uh, the other side here, this is what, uh, of course, uh, James O'Keefe is saying. The jury effectively ruled investigative journalists owe a fiduciary duty to the subjects they are investigating, and that investigative journalists may not deceive the subjects they are investigating, O'Keefe said in a statement on Project Veritas' website. Well, yes, that does look like what they ruled. And you know, the other part that comes out of this, and, and it's something that has certainly been at the front of mind for me as I I deal with all of these relentless legal attacks from the left, is what does the concept of a jury of your peers really mean? What does it mean when it was written and, and what does it mean now? What does it mean anymore? You know, when Roger Stone was brought in front of a jury in Washington, D.C., there was that fundamental issue, the fact that they stacked the jury fraudulently, uh, that they uh, had basically Democrat operatives all throughout the jury. And are those people Roger Stone's peers? Of course they're not. It starts to make you think that perhaps what you have to do is, and this might sound a little crazy, a little unorthodox, but what you might need to do is simply make it such that if you have a case which is in any way politically entangled and you create a test for that, the jury needs to be made up of people of the same political party of the defendant. Or at least it has to be 50-50 because that person, that accused person, is entitled to a jury of their peers. And if they're tried before, the opposite party in a country where, where the political environment is absolutely... Uh, rabid, then they are not being judged by a jury of their peers, not in any way, shape, or form. Now, in the Roger Stone case, there was even a further entanglement that many of these people were IRS agents. They were, uh, you know, SEC lawyers. They were former prosecutors. You actually had people on the jury, and you never put lawyers on juries. Everyone knows that. But they had lawyers on the jury. They had people that were actually entangled with the prosecution. So it was even further uh, tilted. So what the hell does this mean, a jury of your peers? We, I think we need to kind of dive into that as a country at some point and figure this out because uh, more and more, you have situations where people are forced to plead, where people are forced to settle due to the fact that they won't get a jury that resembles anything like their peers. And they know that there's going to be biases in that jury that are not able to be overcome, no matter how much the facts support their side of the case. And, and that's a real issue. Now, I want to go here uh, to uh, questions and answers. I want to go here to questions and answers. I have some questions uh, written. And, of course, you can uh, submit your questions uh, to slash contact. That's the best place to do it. Uh, also, an announcement here. You can now support the show uh, financially by going to jacobwallorg contact. Podcast, jacobwohl.org slash podcast. Link will be in the description and uh, the show notes, depending on where you're listening. It's built through Gumroad. Gumroad, I must say, they've been really great to me. Uh, we have had Predator DC, a support program up there on Gumroad. They have never censored us. They've never stolen our money. They just haven't done any of the things that, that the, the payments we've run into, that the problems we've run into with uh, PayPal and the like. Uh, but I go here, I have a Uh, A a nice $100 donation here from uh, M. Juris uh, for the great show today. Thank you, uh, Mr. Juris. That's uh, wonderful. I really appreciate the compliment and the kind donation. I've got a $50 donation here uh, from Rob, a $60 donation from Stephen, $30 donations from Alex, Trevor, and Michael, and a number of uh, smaller donations that came in as well. Going to your questions here, uh, Austin writes in, Hey, Jacob, Austin from Boston here. The last time I wrote into the show was to share how much pot was responsible for taking away my life. It's the worst kind of drug that doesn't hurt you badly enough to kill you, but actually makes your life meaningless. Anyway, I pretty much had to quit cold turkey. It sucked. I couldn't sleep or uh, make bowel movements. I guess he was constipated for a period of time and was extra anxious For about a month. The main thing that helped me do it was starting my dentistry career, where I've been busy and so motivated slash excited to learn at work uh, that I haven't missed it much. Really, I got lucky to have a job uh, where my kind of mind is so occupied. Uh, Your show is always great to watch. Well, thanks, Austin. I'm glad to hear it worked out for you. You don't want to be using marijuana, especially these days. Uh, He's right about this. I I heard John McAfee say this once that, you know, if if you use heroin or meth, you're going to hit rock bottom at some point. And then maybe either rock bottom means you're dead or or maybe you can then start your life. Uh, The problem with pot is that you never really hit rock bottom unless you're one of these kind of five to nine percent of the population maybe that uh, is going to have mental illness related to it. You just don't really hit rock bottom. And instead, uh, your life just kind of floats by and then it's over. That's the problem with marijuana. Uh, and so, Austin, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Thanks for writing in here. Uh, I, I, I remember you from the censored show, and I, I really thank you for writing in. We go to Drew here. Uh, Drew writes in and asks, hey, Jacob, my question is regarding professional development. I'm a sales professional working in a Fortune 50 tech company, and I'm moving up the ladder more quickly than I had anticipated. That's great. And that's one of the great parts about sales is that if you can sell, you can sell. And, and, and you will be promoted quickly if you can get deals done. He says here, within the next year, I will be poised to become an account manager uh, with a consistent but demanding pipeline. My question is, as someone who is not naturally gifted at giving presentations, uh, as a high, at, at giving, uh, presentations in a high-caliber group setting, how can I best prepare myself to succeed in that domain? Uh, This is a sink or swim environment and I will not be allotted the time to learn the ropes once I'm in the role. My initial thoughts are to utilize the local Toastmasters club and possibly even uh, going to an open mic night uh, here in Austin. I would be interested to hear any advice that you might have on the topic. Uh, Thanks for everything and hit me up uh, for uh, cheap laptops and servers. Well, uh, I will will do that. Uh, So, Drew... You're talking about sales in a, in a group environment. Um, so there's two, there's two parts of this here. There's public speaking, which is one thing. That's kind of Toastmasters, and it's like you're the center of attention for, say, 10 to 1,000 or more people, or, or whatever that happens to be. And public speaking is certainly something that is daunting for a lot of people. Uh, in fact, I think when you look at the most common fears, you have kind of death, you have heights. Uh, sort of right up there. But number one, even above that is the most common top fear is public speaking. People are deathly afraid of it. Uh, for whatever reason, it is a natural fear for a lot of people. So the first thing is, if you have a, a a sort of fear of this, yeah, you've got to get over your fear and your right to seek out sort of exposure therapy uh, to get over the fear of of speaking to groups or selling to groups or something like that. Of course, I think that is a a wonderful pursuit and a good way to do that. Now, The second thing is going to be actually selling within a group. Now, now, I've never really seen in a situation where you'd have to sell to more than, say, 10 people at once. Uh, I mean, basically, the largest possible group you'd be selling to would be sort of a boardroom setup. Generally, it's going to be even less than that. And in selling to a group, you know, you're going to have different archetypes you run into. Basically, in most cases, you're going to have one person in the group that's really in charge, Okay you're essentially going to sell to them. And then if you have any sort of problem children in that group, people that are the skeptics or whatever, that your job is to contain them. Because the issue would be that they would then go to that person who's in charge after the meeting and talk them out of the deal before they have a chance to consummate it. And so you have to sort of contain the concerns that they might bring up and get ahead of those before those concerns can be made uh, pertinent to the main decision-maker or the main couple of decision-makers. So basically that's how you, you sell to a group. You have five people, one of them or maybe two of them are the real decision-makers. You might have one bad apple in that group who's going to try to sideline the deal. The other two are, say, totally ineffectual. You know, to them, entertain them, be nice, make them like you, whatever. They, they'll vote on your side because they like you. Head off the concerns that are going to be put out by the problem child and then you, you sell to your one or two. That's really how you sell in a group. But if the problem is the, the group setting itself, yes, get over that through exposure therapy. I think that's a fine way to do it. Um, and you know, the other thing might be you can go out and try to get together with groups of people and convince them of things. I mean, you can uh, figure out a setting where maybe you can sell the, your company's products currently to group settings, find a way to get in there or find a way to watch people that are doing that now, find a way to tag along with them. I think that would be a very... Uh, valid way of doing that, that uh, would be quite productive for you. So that's the other thing that you can do. Okay. I go here now uh, to a story. Again, thanks so much, guys. Uh, again, org slash podcast, or you can uh, support on Cash App, Real Jacob Wohl. Get a number of donations there. Real Jacob Wohl on Cash App. Uh, we go here now uh, to a story that uh, bill that was quietly passed in the house last week. And it, it, it is an attempt to overhaul the country's election system. Uh, this is a report from the Federalist on it. it. Says House passes Liz Cheney's Trojan Horse Elections Bill, enabling Democrat takeover of the ballot box. Port says the House of Representatives passed legislation on Wednesday to overhaul the 1887 Electoral Count Act and rewrite election rules to benefit Democrats in presidential contests. The bill proposed by a GOP. Uh, Wyoming Rep. Liz Cheney and Rep. Zoe Lofgren, a Democrat from California who is under uh, Cheney on the Jan 6 committee, reforms the 135-year-old law to narrow the grounds for objections to presidential electors and open the door to late-day voting. Uh, Cheney's Presidential Election Reform Act became the Democrats' answer to their failed effort to override state election laws in H.R. 1 which Senate Republicans blocked last summer. The legislation carries some of the same provisions of the doomed election bill that top Democrats uh, put on their agenda. Just nine Republicans supported the bill, all but one of whom supported Donald Trump's second impeachment, uh, who are either retiring or have lost their primaries. Uh, one person who came out in support of this was Marjorie Taylor Greene, which was quite bizarre. Then she deleted the tweet. It, was, it was kind of strange. Uh, New York Republican... Uh, Claudia Tenney, who co-chairs the election integrity caucus, condemned the bill as the latest attempt from House Democrats to stack the democratic process in their favor and complained that the proposal did not go through the proper legislative process. The text was only released days before uh, the Wednesday vote and received no bipartisan hearing or markup in committee. Uh, It is nothing more than a partisan messaging bill intended to score cheap political points weeks before an election, Tenney said. So they're talking about this here. The, broadly, uh, the bill broadly defines a catastrophic event which could be used to extend balloting for up to five days after the polls close in a presidential election, Tenney said. It also tramples on the core principles of state sovereignty and directly contradicts the United States Constitution. The legislation also creates broad private rights of action and a backdoor to empower Democrat election lawyers and partisan operatives. So this is huge here. It says that the bill defines a catastrophic event. So you can have a catastrophic event and they can actually call the following five days after Election Day to be Election Day. Now, we all know exactly what that means. And they've already sort of done it with mail-in voting in many states to extend Election Day to mean all kinds of different things rather than just Election Day. The broad mail-in voting is a huge problem. That hasn't been addressed by Republicans. It continues to go on. It hasn't been gotten rid of uh, in any large numbers. So basically, they can extend voting five days after Election Day if they so choose. And that means anything can be used as a catastrophic event. Another pandemic, a surge, a wave, a variant can be used, an earthquake, uh, a car accident. I don't know what they will choose. Maybe just they, the Democrats not being ahead in the polls. That's probably enough for them to say it's, it's, dem- it's catastrophic. We need more votes. And of course, that is when... The dumping takes place. We have seen it around the country, uh, whether it's at 4 a.m. Or, or thereafter. We need to get this under control. The congresswoman from central New York called on colleagues to outlaw the private takeover elections through, quote, Zuckerbucks. This is Zuckerberg backing these uh, groups with hundreds of millions of dollars. Illinois uh, Rep. Rodney Davis similarly contend the bill's expedited passage through the lower chamber on the House floor and highlighted the hypocrisy over electoral in- objections. Democrats have... Uh, objected to every single Republican presidential win in the 21st century. That's true. We all recall that. They opposed a Bush both times. Uh, they opposed Trump on the floor. But they're allowed to do that. That doesn't count as an insurrection when uh, they do it. Not at all. So this is something to watch. But I think the bigger thing is that this bill, It doesn't. it's unclear whether to make it through the Senate. I doubt that it'll make it through the Senate. More concerning, though, is when we get to after Election Day, If Democrats lose both houses, it's going to be in a lame duck session. They will ram through things that you can't even imagine. And what they will do is that given the time of year, given the season, uh, they will do things like what you see in this election bill times 10, and they'll be rammed into spending bills, so-called must-pass spending bills, in the 11th hour. Uh, They will be rammed through Congress, and they will change the course of the nation through those sort of moves rather than uh, passing bills that are on their own. This is just the trial balloon. You're going to see uh, much more take place here. But uh, guys, thanks for watching today. We're going to be back on Thursday, 2 p.m. live on YouTube and on podcast apps everywhere. Uh, Leave us a review, a thumbs up, a comment. That's all good to help break through the algorithms here that are uh, suppressing us so much. You can support the show at jacobwoll.org slash podcast. or on Cash App, Real Jacob Wool. Thanks for watching, everyone, and I'll see you on Thursday.